Ruth chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourner travel in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Killian or Chilean, depending on what version you're looking at. There were Ephraimites, they were Ephraimites from Bethlehem and Judah. Uh, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Uh, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about Ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the the woman was left with her, two, without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to uh, from the country of Moab, for she had heard uh, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. She set out from the place where she was with her, her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, uh, as he has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying no, my daughters? For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and, and wept. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this is a, a key uh, passage here, uh, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, 
do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt uh, bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, uh, who returned from the country of Moab, and uh, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Amen. And we know that God indeed will bless this reading uh, from his own word. I wonder, do you ever think when you're reading something, what sort of literature it is? Are you reading a poem or are you reading prose? I have a brother-in-law in in the ministry and he, uh, uh, his wife uh, would write the odd bit of poetry and he has written the the odd book, dare I say, and he always contends that well-written prose is better uh, than poetry. It's something that uh, uh, is much more pleasing. When we look at the book of Ruth, I suppose the, the only thing we, we should note about it as far as, as setting it in, in its genre, its literary form, uh, is to remember it is a short story. And uh, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with short stories or if you read short stories. There are several things about them, and and Ruth fits into all of these things. Uh, Usually not very many characters are involved in a a short story. Uh, uh, You should be able to read it all at at one setting. Uh, And uh, as well as that, it, it should produce something of an emotion within you. And uh, that's maybe where the little bit of difficulty comes when you look at Ruth. Uh, uh, Do you read it and you think it's a great love story? And maybe that's the emotion that it produces in you. Uh, That gave me a little bit of a problem because at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of strands that I I find that hopefully over the next today and over... Uh, the Lord's Day, we'll see some of those strands and uh, pulled out. But it, it isn't on its own as a short story. Apparently a few years back, the figures were released for it, uh, there was almost three quarters of a million short stories published, at least in the UK or in the English-speaking world, whatever way you want to, to measure it. And I think for the first time in 2013, a short story won the Nobel Prize for, for literature. That's the, the top prize, I imagine uh, it is. And indeed, there's, there are venues, one in particular in London, I think it's called the, the Pindrop Studio, where writers go to read their story and people come to listen to it. So uh, the, the genre, the, the type of literature you're dealing with in Ruth is, is not that... Uh, particularly rare and it doesn't have to be just categorised as another Mills and Boone or if you're not familiar with Mills and Boone and you didn't have a great granny reading it uh, maybe a chick flick if we could use those those terms it's not merely that uh, not merely just a romance uh, might be a better way uh, to put it when you look at Ruth uh, and you try to, to set it uh, in its context, it's interesting as well, because um, 
the book of Ruth apparently in the Hebrew Bible was somewhere else. I didn't care enough to remember where it was. Uh, it's bad enough trying to remember where it is uh, in, uh, in our English Bible, but apparently the Hebrews put it somewhere else. Now I'm not sure who was, who was guilty for moving the books around into their final state. Stephen Langton was the one that gave us all the verses. And I, I always think that Stephen Langton should have statues up to him and memorials because can you imagine uh, having your Bible and no, no verses and no chapters and trying to find and trying to reference anything. He was a, 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 a long gone Archbishop of Canterbury who, who sat down and for better or for worse uh, gave the verses. But I'm not sure who moved Ruth around. But I think it's in the right place because in a sense if you were uh, to read Ruth uh, in its context um, I, I, in preparation for this, I came across a little book, and uh, I, I think I downloaded it more for its cover than for anything else. But it has a picture of all these people out in the barley harvest, uh, and not a modern picture, but a, a picture, uh, someone painting uh, the scene of that day, all out in the barley harvest. And of course, that's where uh, a, a big setting of Ruth is, uh, 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 Naomi coming home, uh, and, and uh, the time was of the barley harvest. Uh, and it's a little devotional book. It's the sort of book that when a secular bookshop maybe was open uh, at one time, there used to be it was a Borders bookshop in Glasgow, and if you went to the Christian section, and most of it was rubbish, but every so often you found one that hadn't made it into the evangelical bookshop or the Conanter bookshop or whatever, came from somebody who was sort of unknown, and uh, it was a great little book. Uh, it was the sort of book you might have found in that place. Uh, and uh, I kept thinking, you know, if you were writing a foreword to Ruth, in many ways it, it would be easy. You just go to the last, the last verse uh, of the book of Judges that is before it. Remember, it says there, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you were allowed, you could read the first verse of Ruth. In those days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the judges ruled and there was a famine. You could almost put the two verses and weave them, maybe better than I would, uh, together. But that is the setting of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled in the land, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Because that's exactly what Naomi and Abimelech, uh, Elimelech, uh, were doing. That which was right in their own eyes. There was a famine, and with famine came oppression and, and persecution. Uh, and Judges, again, to try to keep it in its setting, is the story of walking with God and departing from God. It's the story of blessing. It's the story of chastisement, of famine, of pestilence, and of sword. And it seemed to be that this is a story... Maybe it's a wayward wife. I'm not sure. Uh, you might want to, as you look through it, think, uh, was Elimelech, was he handpicked? Was it Naomi all along that was, was calling the shots? You can speculate in all sorts of ways. But they left the covenant community and they headed off 
to the land of Moab. And we don't really have to get in, or have we time to get into all the history of Moab, but uh, it wasn't a good place. It wasn't where Israel's God was worshipped. Uh, it was very different from that. And if in Israel, everyone was doing that which was right in uh, their own eyes, Moab seemed to be the place that everyone was doing that which was right. Well, that which was wrong, because it would be that which was right in the eyes of a false god. The other thing about the book of Ruth is it's a, it's a great generational book. It doesn't leave out the history. Uh, you remember uh, Ruth, uh, she married Boaz, and they had a son, Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And Obed uh, can be traced back to Pharaoh's, and Pharaoh was the son of Tamar, uh, the grandson of Abraham. So you've got that great scope there from Abraham uh, right through to David and then to great David, uh, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Ruth being brought in uh, to the royal line uh, from Abraham to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I think that is a very important thing not to miss. I'm tempted to say it's the story of a very ordinary person because it's hard to see Ruth as anything else. I think when I looked at this before, there's a, I spent more time on it, but there's a, there, there's a sense in which Ruth was that little foreigner and sometimes I think when uh, guys are looking at the, the wife and they think, you know, she looks so different. She's special. She's not like all the other women around. And maybe that's, uh, maybe that uh, goes to their head. And maybe that's what was happening uh, with these men as they married two foreigners. But it's the story of ordinary people. Yes, it's the story of the royal line going all the way from Abraham to David but it's the story of a very ordinary individual. And to use the American term, she was from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, many years ago, we visited a place called Fukue Verena. Now, nobody will ever have heard of Fukue Verena. But uh, it's a wee bit like Kells and Connor, in a sense. Unless you were brought up there, you're never going to know where one starts and the other uh, begins. But it was easy enough in Fukue Farina to know uh, where Fukue was and where Farina was, because the railway line ran between the two. And uh, I can't remember all the details, but one was poor and probably black and the other was wealthy and probably predominantly white. And uh, it illustrated totally the idea of the wrong side of the tracks. And apparently a lot of American towns are like that. The railway line was the divide between the prosperous and, and, and the poor. And the, there's that real sense, at least spiritually, that Ruth came from nowhere. And I think that in some ways, when you, you reflect upon it, um, uh, 
you know, how good are we at reaching out to the other side of the tracks? I have a friend who's gone to, might as well say, to Newton Hamilton, South Armagh. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he is some Roman Catholic woman who have married into the congregation. And he says, you know, it, it, it's a little bit touchy. And I says, I'm sure it is, because I'm sure they have relatives, knowing where they come from, that they have relatives who were just call a spade a spade active in the IRA. And, uh, you know, that part of the world, the, the hideous murders that were uh, perpetrated. So people will always have a sense of, you know, what went on and what their connection is and whatever uh, else is. Now, we're familiar with the word turned, I suppose, rather than converted, and I'm not sure uh, in that case that all of them are converted, but they've turned. So it's maybe, you know, the, they've come within the, the, well, the influence of the congregation, but maybe not into the kingdom of God. And then, believe it or not, in that place, there's a whole host of Europeans. He says, how good is that church ever going to be at reaching out, first of all, uh, to the nationalist population. And then further than that, reaching out to the, the uh, whole host of, of relatively impoverished Europeans because they, they come and they will live in very substandard housing in a sense that's why they're there. And uh, they will live cheek by jowl and they will overcrowd. But ordinary. And then what we're finding here that God used something that was very ordinary, a very ordinary person, and that was Ruth, and she was brought right into the royal line. I've had two young men go into the ministry uh, over the years, and uh, in some ways I've always said that you know getting to know them has been a wee bit spectacular. The first was Roy Campbell, who, who tragically died a, a few years back. But m my first Sunday in Bodoni, Corrick and Glenelly, I was driving from Glenelly to Corrick, and his house was on fire. So, you know, like you, you sort of get to know that family reasonably quickly when they burn down the house to greet you. Uh, but the, the peat shed or the turf shed as they... Uh, proverbially talked about had gone on fire, an electrical fault, and there was plenty of smoke coming from it, and there was fire engines. The honour the was Alistair Torrance and, and, uh, uh, and Money Digg, and uh, I'm always saying he was the wisest man in Money Digg, because my first Sunday there, he left to go to university. Uh, he didn't even make it uh, that day. But uh, Alistair was a very shy fellow from Coray, and off he went to university uh, in England, and uh, uh, he had a notion of studying Russian. Now, he had no notion of any Russian, but off he went, and he got himself, I think, maybe first-class honours in Russian and German. And, uh, you know, I, I heard a bit about Alistair before I, I met him, and they said, oh, Alistair comes to the Youth Fellowship, and he's a Christian fella, and he plays a bit of badminton, but, you know, he never does anything else. He never goes out. Uh, he just goes to school and does that, and off, off he went. And uh, by the time he was coming back, he was determined he was going as a missionary to Russia. Uh, he hadn't been to Bible college or anything uh, approaching that, but he was really determined. I was trying to talk him into go to seminary, but waste of time. And uh, off he went, and then about three or four years later, he decided, uh, I need some training. 
and off he went uh, eventually uh, kicking and screaming to Westminster Seminary but he hated Americans, thought they were terrible. And uh, after a, a couple of goes at it, he found, uh, oh, he found a wife, and lo and behold, he married an American proverbial justice for somebody who hated an ethnic uh, uh, bunch. So he married his American wife, uh, and, um, who is from Walla Walla in Washington. And, you know, she'd have a quiz, uh, and the question is, what is Walla Walla in Washington famous for? I'll not tell you, you can find out. Uh, you're having a quiz tonight, uh, find that out. But he, he married. But Alistair now is academic dean uh, in the Presbyterian Seminary in Kiev, one of the founding faculty of it. And tomorrow, there'll be 30 churches that will have a minister because of his work in Kiev. Very ordinary. And yet, you know, you, you don't hear from Alistair unless something goes wrong. He, he just quietly gets on with it. Uh, and, and in a phenomenal way. Uh, a real example of the ordinary. And, you know, the example of the ordinary was given of Spurgeon. You know, apparently Spurgeon on converted one Sunday, went to church, and you know the story uh, of the preacher who could say virtually nothing except look unto the Lord, uh, uh, and uh, he was converted. And for what was it, 50 years, Spurgeon preached every Sunday to a thousand uh, people in his congregation, or thousands of people in his congregations, and no one probably uh, had the, the same impact as Spurgeon has in his day. Ruth, she was ordinary. And the challenge is, probably for us from that, who are the ordinary around us that we're not reaching? And who are we not finding? You know, um, sometimes we're taken by the extraordinary and the famous and this and that and the other, but what about the ordinary? Because God seems to uh, say something there about taking the ordinary and really using it. <clears throat> Several years ago, I, um, I was on holidays and... Um, I got this CD and it was scribbled badly on the envelope and uh, there was something on the CD saying it was 34 and a half hours. It was like an MP3. I thought, what nutcase is sending me a CD and expecting me to lift, listen to 34 and a half hours? And I'd thrown it to the side. I'd got it before I went on holidays and I'd taken it with me. And the car had an MP3 CD player at the time, and I put it in. And it, it, it was the story of, of, of uh, the lost art, I think it's called, of Christian evangelism. It's by a guy, John Dixon, who's one of the Australian sort of uh, Sydney diocese people. And uh, I started to listen to it. And I, it was Roy Campbell who had sent me to it. He had bootlegged it or copied it or whatever he, he had done. And he thought it would be useful. And I, I couldn't stop listening to it. But, you know, his whole thing was about doing the ordinary. Um, and um, it's a long time since I read the book. But I, I did what a friend sometimes does. I, I summarized it. And the book's easily summarized. It's about living, giving, praying, and saying. Living, giving, praying, and saying. But he's a great example of, 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 of two people and how they did the ordinary thing in evangelism. And um, 
The first one was a, a, a physician, a doctor, and he, he got into he, he got into do it yourself, and he went off to well a classy tool shop and bought the top of the range drill and the top of the range plane and whatever else and. He had bought those, and uh, a neighbour asked to borrow it. And you know the story: the neighbour borrowed it, and it came back, and the, well, the plug was smashed on it. And he'd driven over it with a car, and there were scrapes on it, and whatever else. And this was his pride and joy. And uh, he thought to himself, "I've got this all wrong. I'm going to buy the cheapest one, and I'm going to buy three of them." So he, he just started, instead of buying £100 worth, he bought 30 quids worth, bought the cheapest, and anybody who wanted to borrow it could borrow it. And then he tells the story of himself, and he says that um, he, he grew up in a non-Christian home, and uh, he said his father had a, an awful accident. And he was in hospital, and he was in traction, and he was semi-paralyzed, and he was a big man. And, he was able to get home, but it was, a, it was a hard situation. But there was a fireman lived down the street, and he knocked the door, and he says to his wife, Mrs. Dixon, I hear things are not good. Uh, he says, don't be offended, but if you want, I will come at night, and I will help you bath your husband. And she was far enough down to say, you know, that that was something she was going to accept, and she accepted it and whatever, and that led to him inviting the children to Sunday school, and that led to one of those children now in the ministry. You see how God takes the ordinary for those who are prepared to be the ordinary and to, to reach out. Maybe enough of a diversion. The beginning, uh, the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and uh, there was this family. Where are we going, what are we going to say about them? Uh, some people will say, don't, uh, don't read too much into the story about their move. But I think, I'm maybe not on the side of that. I think there is a lot. Uh, because everyone in the time of the judges was doing that which was right in their own eyes. They weren't particularly looking to do that which was right in God's eyes. And they looked to Moab. And I think in a sense they were looking to the bright city and they weren't thinking that much about what God was doing in their life and how they needed to be among God's people, and they took the move. And it struck me over the years that friends have done the same. I have one friend that I used to share a room with, and it's long ago, so I'm not mentioning any names, but I remember he was offered half a field in a particular town in County Down to build his house. And he moved away, and he did that, and he became an elder in the local church, but it wasn't a great place to be, and he got really badly caught in the calling of a minister, and things went wrong. And I think he would say, I moved because there was a real advantage in getting my own home there and everything else, but it was a poison chalice, that move. I wasn't calculating where I was, and what God wanted me to be there for. 
I can think of two situations that a friend in the ministry told me about. Two farmers who moved, I think one to Scotland and the other to somewhere in England. Shouldn't really say too much because sometimes people work out these, these things. But they moved from a godly congregation. And you could write the story, couldn't you? As far as I understand, their children are nowhere. Oh, they're big farmers and they're doing well farming ways. But they're nowhere. Is that what was happening here uh, with uh, Ruth and her husband when they moved? Was she the one saying, look, if you go to Moab, we can double the acreage or we can do this and that and the other. And then what happened with the children once they moved there? Now, don't get me wrong, the move sometimes can be geographic, but the move sometimes also can be emotional. It doesn't require you to sell your house and do it. Um, the move can be away from the things of God. And sometimes the move can be exceptionally advantageous. Uh, in my first congregation, there was a family. And if I said you would know who some of them are, and they, uh, the, the girls left and they went to Belfast, and one of them married one of your ministers in the past, uh, married there and the other uh, and when you when you met them you realized that where they had gone to and what they had become was an awful lot better than what they had left and they you know years ago I was asked to speak in a free church and uh, Sunday evening I did a contrast between the book of Ruth uh, and the book of Jonah you know Jonah was to go to Nineveh. He was to get up and to move. But there was a purpose in doing that. But in the book of Ruth, it was a different thing. It was a convenience. Uh, I'm reminded of a rather short remark made by an Australian woman, a a friend who, in in Scotland, in fact, he was a very close friend of Peter Jeffries in Aberdeen. And he was minister in the Bahamas, and he moved back to Glasgow. And uh, this Australian lady put me on the spot one night, and she said, do you think this is a call, George, or is it a convenience, uh, the moving back? Uh, I think it was a call, but uh, she was not pleased at him moving away. Sometimes uh, people think they're moving for convenience. When you look at the the time, the famine lasted a long time, didn't it? Ten years. Uh, If you ever want to to, to listen to a lot on this, I would recommend Jim Phillip on it. Jim Phillip preached in this in 1967, and uh, I've listened to his his tapes, his midweek tapes on it there on the Tron website in, uh, in Glasgow. But uh, one expression sticks with me. He says, 10 years, he says, that was a gay-long famine, a gay-long famine. Uh, In other words, did they really just move because of the famine? Or were they moving for some other reason? What then do we see? We see that Marlon and Killian, they, they died. And these two women were left. They seemed close to a mother-in-law. It looked as if Naomi was was kind uh, to them. Uh, And that's 
that's, uh, that's brought out in the story. And we see especially that Ruth would cling to her mother-in-law. And we see, sadly, if you look at it, the same, the same uh, thing wasn't true of Orpha. They, she had a good relationship with her mother-in-law, but uh, it wasn't like Ruth's. And again, you could stop and you could go down a, maybe a bit of a side path there and you could say, has there something happened? Maybe it's not a side path. Has there something happened in Ruth's life? that hasn't happened in Orpha's life. And it would be difficult not to see that. Something had happened in Ruth's life. And in verses 16 and 17, uh, you see uh, the profession of faith. When we were reading it, we, we, we stopped a wee bit at that uh, just to, to see. And let me read it to you again. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to, go, or to return from following you. For where... Uh, you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will go, lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Your God, my God. I think we'd be a bit obtuse if we, we didn't realize that this is a real profession of faith. This is a real mark of this lady uh, being converted. And uh, it strikes me sometimes that we settle so strongly on Paul's road to Damascus. And that's the model of conversion. And it has to be like that. That we miss in all our parts of Scripture how God has been at work in people's lives. Um, I thought I was pushed in New Testament terms. I think um, there are three almost paradigms, almost paradigms of regeneration. There is certainly what we find in Acts 9 with Paul. I once was blind, but now I see, to use John Newton's uh, phrase for that uh, on the Damascus Road. Uh, but we also find in, in Timothy, Paul writing there, uh, from childhood, uh, Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings that were able to make him wise unto salvation. So we have Paul, who was the educated uh, adversary of the New Testament church. But we also have Timothy who grew up within the covenant community, his mother, his grandmother. And I think if you had interviewed Timothy, and challenge me on this if you don't like it, but if you had interviewed Timothy, he probably would have said to you, I don't really remember a time when I didn't love the Savior. He might have said that. I, I think that's what I'm getting from. And then you have John the Baptist. And this... Uh, this was pointed out to me, of all people, by a Baptist colleague, I remember my first charge, uh, saying to me that they had lost a, a, a child before uh, uh, he or she was born, a uh, stillbirth. And he said this was the thing that really brought him comfort. And that was, you remember, when uh, Mary went to see Elizabeth 
We remember that uh, the, the child, not only her, but the child, uh, I think it says, was full of the Holy Spirit and leapt in his mother's womb. You see, I, I think we need to know this in the order of salvation, that new birth comes before repentance and faith. And new birth is an act of, of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, we read in Genesis that every inclination of the heart of man is continually evil all of the time. If every inclination of your heart is continually evil, something has to be done to your heart so that you might repent of your sin and you might believe. And that the new birth is that something. It's God taking out the heart of, of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. So we see very clearly, I believe, in these verses, we see very clearly that something happened in Ruth's life that hadn't happened in Orpha's life. And that was that God, she had responded uh, to the God of her mother-in-law and uh, Orpha hadn't. And why she had responded, and the same in the Old Testament and the New, the only reason that she would respond is that God had given her a new heart. We've said a wee bit about Naomi. Was she the pushy wife? Uh, had she pushed her husband? Had she taken Elimelech the wrong way? In a sense, we, we're, we're maybe speculating too far when we try to answer those questions. Uh, they're, maybe, they're maybe cautionary questions that we should be careful. Uh, uh, women should be careful in how they push their husbands. Husbands should be very careful in how, how they lead. Uh, also, maybe there's, there's something there to be teased out. But she came back from Moab. She went to Moab with her heels up, thinking this was progress. But she came back, and she came back without a husband or without sons. And she came back at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you know, uh, it's not a great picture. She left when there was a famine, but God seemed as if he was preparing for her to restore the years that the locusts had eaten. Moab had not been a great experience. It had been a tragic experience for her. And uh, there's a couple of things we find here, just in, in closing, that God was incorporating in to even the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was incorporating Ruth into that line. Uh, we have a story of Naomi coming back, can we say, backslidden. We have the story of Orpha uh, rejecting God's grace. And we have the story of Ruth, a sinner, repenting, a sinner saved by Grace. A few thoughts on the on the on the first chapter, and we'll move on to the other other chapters as time 
goes on. Different things probably I want to leave you with you. I'm not rehearsing them all. But maybe think seriously. If God was bringing Ruth into the kingdom, where are the Ruths of this district and this village? It's the male Ruths and the female Ruths in a gender-confused age, if I can put it like that. Where are they? And uh, how good are we at finding them and uh, going after them? Joel's going to come and uh, leave us in a psalm, but let's pray just for a moment. First, oh, you stand and pray. <laughs> I have to try and remember that. Uh, <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we have been able to gather in your presence today, and we, we ask, Lord, that uh, as we have read and as we have meditated upon this chapter, that these things might find a lodging place in our minds, even as we enjoy the rest of this day. Bless us richly, we pray. And we pray, Lord, for the, the folks around us, the village around us, and uh, Lord, who seem to be separated uh, from us by so many different degrees, whether it be just by their secularism, whether it be by a different religion, a different way of thinking, or whatever. And we pray, Lord, that even the roofs of this place, that in your grace and mercy, you might draw them uh, into this place. And we ask all of these things with the forgiveness of our sins in the Savior's name. Amen.